0: There are at least two ways to see the Messiah's presence in the Old Testament. The chief would be the Lord's messenger. Dr. Reed Lessing, co-author of the Issues Etc., a book of the month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. The second way we see the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament would be through God's glory. Learn more about the Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. I think what we see emerging is essentially new forms of secular orthodoxy forming and we can really view these modern-day hate speech cases
1: as an equivalent really of the blasphemy cases of old.
0: Getting your kids counter-programmed to have their social life, family and community focused, this is generally what the research suggests is useful for a successful transmission of values across generations the Lord does
2: not set us to look for escape from trouble. He sends his church right into the midst of trouble. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. We're not taught to look for an escape from trouble, but to confess Christ and let come what may. Lord, thank you that I belong to a we. I am baptized into your church so that, that even if I feel alone, I can pray the first word of the prayer Jesus gives me and know that I'm not alone. I belong to your church, Lord. This is Will from Michigan, and I'm a Lutheran high school teacher and football coach. And I love beginning my day listening to issues, etc. All right, guys, let's go.
0: Jesus gives us permission. In fact, he exhorts us to search the scriptures and find him. And that includes the Old Testament. So does that mean that we can start with the book of Genesis And find Jesus there in predictions, in patterns, and even present there? Yes, it does. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Wednesday afternoon, the 13th of September. We're going to continue our series on finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. Andrew Steinman joins us. He's Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago, co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September messianic message predictions patterns and the presence of jesus in the old testament dr steinman welcome back thank you todd it's good to be back with you you say that the book of genesis is the foundation of the entire old testament what do you mean by that
1: well i mean that it introduces a lot of concepts that are foundational for understanding what's going on in the rest of the old testament so obviously creation which the prophets will refer to, especially Isaiah later on, the origins of the people of Israel, which is fundamentally important for everything else in the Old Testament. And as we argue in our book, Dr. Lessing and I see it as foundational for the promise of the Messiah to come, fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament.
0: Where do we find predictions of Jesus in Genesis?
1: Well, a number of them, The probably the most important one is very early in the book of Genesis in chapter three, verse 15, where after the fall, it is promised to Eve that someone from her line will come to crush the head of Satan. It's called the seed of Eve there, the, the seed of the woman. The seed there is singular, refers to a specific person, And that person, of course, is the Messiah whose predictions are unfolded as we go throughout the Old Testament. So right away, almost immediately in the book of Genesis, we have to have the fall first, of course, because there's no point in having someone to come to crush Satan's head until after the fall. But immediately after the fall, we get the first Messianic prediction. But the book of Genesis doesn't stop there. We get more of it later on. Specifically, the promises to Abraham are very important, where Abraham has promised that through him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And this, again, is the promise of the Messianic seed that runs from Adam and Eve all the way down to Abraham. This is the point of the genealogies early in the book of Genesis to trace that line down to Abraham. And now Abraham is told that the blessing for all nations, not just the people of Israel, will come through him. So we have it there again. And then the third place that is critically important is in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is on his deathbed and he calls his sons to come in and he tells them he is going to prophesy about their future. And he uh, starts out with his oldest son, Reuben. Reuben doesn't get much of a, a promise because he sinned and slept with his father's concubine. So Reuben doesn't get much of a promise there. And then he takes the next two sons together, Simeon and Levi, and they don't get uh, much of a good deal because of the murder of the Shechemites that's recorded earlier in Genesis That. Simeon and Reuben carried out in vengeance for the rape of their sister Tamar. And then he finally comes to Judah. And it's very dramatic, especially when you're reading it in the Hebrew, he says, Judah, you, as if almost like when he comes to Judah, he has an insight, you, you're the one. And then he goes on to prophesy about Judah, comparing him to a lion. And he prophesies that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Until Shiloh comes. And I believe Shiloh is a name for the Messiah, and it is uh, one of the messianic names we find in the Old Testament. Isaiah, of course, has a number of these in his prophecies too. But here, for the first time, we have the Messiah directly linked to a kingly role because he's going to have a scepter. And of course, this is played out in the New Testament as late as the book of Revelation, where we have. Jesus called the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the book of Genesis traces this promise then in direct prophecies, first to Eve, then to Abraham. And those prophecies are repeated to Isaac and Jacob. And then finally to one of Jacob's sons, Judah. And then we now know once we finish the book of Genesis to follow the tribe of Judah because that is where the promise lies.
0: What patterns of the Messiah are in Genesis?
1: There are a number of uh, patterns. These are very important because they look forward to Jesus in the way things happen or the way they are portrayed by Moses in the book of Genesis. One of these, of course, is Noah, where uh, we have this well-known story of God saving humanity through the efforts of Noah and Noah becomes kind of a pattern for the Messiah, that with Noah and his faithful work, God saves all of humanity. Now, of course, Noah is not the perfect pattern of the Messiah, no one is, because Noah, like everyone else, is sinful, and unlike Jesus, who was without sin, but nevertheless, he becomes a pattern for the redemption of humankind the saving of humankind in what he does later on we get a man named Melchizedek whom we are told is a a priest of God most high and after Abraham rescues Lot and has a lot of captured goods that he had captured from the the kings who had kidnapped Lot he tithes them to Melchizedek. He gives 10% to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abram. And Melchizedek becomes a pattern for Jesus because he's a priest whose lineage is not given, interestingly enough, in the Old Testament. He just shows up in the Old Testament. We don't know who his parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were. But nevertheless, He is a priest, and Jesus also is a priest, but he can't trace his lineage back through Aaron either. Jesus, unlike the Old Testament priests, all of them in Israel had to trace their lineage back through uh, Moses' brother Aaron. Jesus' lineage doesn't do that, just like Melchizedek's lineage doesn't do that. And the New Testament makes this comparison between Melchizedek and Jesus. And if you look in chapter seven of Hebrews, you will see that the writer to the Hebrews sees Melchizedek as a pattern of the Messiah. Another thing we see is Joseph. Joseph, as of course, a very interesting character. Many people know the Bible stories about Joseph. Maybe they learned them in Sunday school or something like that. But he has a number of parallels to Jesus. So Joseph is betrayed by his own family. Jesus is betrayed by his own nation, the Jewish nation. Jesus is rescued from death and rises again Well, Joseph seemingly is dead, especially to his father who assumes he's dead, but then he is found to be alive. Kind of a presage of a greater coming to life, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so we have kind of the way that moses tells the story of joseph kind of is parallel to what we find when we finally come to jesus and we should keep in mind when moses is telling us the story of joseph he had to choose what he's going to tell us out of joseph's life he doesn't tell us everything that happened during joseph's long life he tells us specific incidents and he shapes the story in such a way that Joseph and what he does and God's work through Joseph to save the people of Israel from extinction during the Great Famine is kind of parallel in a way to what the Messiah does to save the entire world through his death and resurrection.
0: Is Jesus present in the first book of the Bible?
1: Uh, Yes, he is. And here we have to explore a figure that's called the angel of God or the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. When this angel first appears in the Bible, he appears to Hagar, the slave girl that Sarah gave to Abraham as a wife to have a son because she couldn't have a son. And the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar in Genesis 16 and in Genesis 21. And what we find out if we read the text carefully is the angel of the Lord is the Lord. He is a God himself. And the promises he makes are promises only God can make. So in Genesis 16, we read the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that it cannot be numbered for multitude. That's a promise that only God can guarantee. And Hagar recognizes this angel as God when she names him in Hebrew El Roi, which means God sees me. She understood that God appeared to her. Now, why do we know this is Jesus? Why can't it be God the Father or the Holy Spirit? but specifically Jesus. Well, you'll remember that in the New Testament, John makes an interesting statement. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son of God, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So John says, you haven't seen the Father, but you have seen the Son. People have seen the Son. He's the one who makes the Father known. And later on, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father so this is a recognition that the angel of the lord that we meet in the old testament is indeed an appearance of jesus himself and ironically he first appears to hagar not to abraham or isaac or jacob or any of the people of israel but to this egyptian slave girl which is i think very encouraging when we think about the gospel because jesus comes and has compassion on this gentile egyptian woman whose life is threatened who is in danger of dying but he promises her great things and so also jesus promises great things not just to the people of israel but also to all the gentiles and so that is very important in genesis another place we see this presence is in genesis 18 where we have three visitors come to visit Abraham. And we're told the two of them go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham stands before the Lord. And of course, this is the famous story of Abraham pleading for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If righteous men are found in this city, will you spare it? And he bargains down from a higher number to a lower number, asking God to spare the city. And here again, it's very clear that Abraham is seeing God and speaking in front of him and holding a conversation to him. And once again, this has to be Jesus because only Jesus reveals the Father. Only Jesus has been seen. Later on, Jacob has a dream, the famous dream of Jacob's ladder, probably better characterized as a staircase to heaven. And at the top of the staircase, Again, he sees God who gives him promises that he is going to bless him with the blessing given to Abraham, that he's going to bring him back to the land. At this point, he's fleeing the land because his brother Esau is out to kill him. Jacob, later on in the book of Genesis, acknowledges that he saw the angel, the angel who appeared to him, he calls it. Now, this is an interesting passage because, of course, it's referenced by Jesus in the New Testament speaking to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, where Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, a reference to the angels of God who were coming up and down on that ladder to Jacob. And so Jesus himself connects himself back to that dream, I guess I should call it, that Jacob had. Uh, We could also uh, think about a couple other passages where Jacob's involved in seeing the pre-incarnate Christ. In Genesis 31, he has a brief encounter with the angel of God in a dream, which he recounts to his wives, Rachel and Leah. And this angel of God identifies himself to Jacob as the God of Bethel. That's the place where Jacob had the dream about the staircase to heaven. So he again appears to him and identifies himself as the God who appeared to him there. Again, Jesus before his incarnation. And then in the very next chapter, Genesis 32, we have the well-known story of Jacob wrestling with this mysterious man who appears to him at night. And he wrestles and he won't let go until he gets a blessing. And interestingly enough, at the end of that incident, Genesis 32, verse 30, Jacob names that place Peniel, which is Hebrew for face of God, because he says he's seen God's face. And again, this is Jesus with whom Jacob was wrestling. So we have Jesus present a number of times in the book of Genesis as he interacts with people to bring about the promise that he promised originally to Eve.
0: Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. It's part two of our series with him finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And when we come back, we'll talk about predictions, patterns, and the presence of Jesus in the other books of Moses. sanctified us in the true faith.
2: Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org.
1: St. Peter encourages us, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is where we get the Greek word for apologetics, that is to defend the Christian faith. The September issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the topics of apologetics and archaeology and discusses both of them in detail with articles from Paul Meyer, Sarah Rinsel, Mark Meal, and David Adams. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective.
2: Sanctifying your exercise routine with the Word of God. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org.
0: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message. Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. Steinman, let's talk about some of the predictions, patterns, and presence in the other books of Moses.
1: Yes, well, we could uh, talk about the um, predictions, especially in the book of Numbers. This interesting prophet, Balaam. Now, Balaam's a prophet, but he's not from the people of Israel. He was hired by a king named Balak, who doesn't want the people of Israel Going through his land. They had asked for permission to come through his land, but he refused it. And he hires Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel. So Balaam has an interesting relationship with God. He spoke God's word. He called God the Lord, my God, but he's eager to hire himself out to curse somebody that God doesn't want to curse, the people of Israel. But yet, when he prophesies, God turns this always into blessing. And in Numbers, especially Numbers chapter 24, Balaam says that he sees someone is coming. He says, I see him, but not near. So he says, I see this person, but he's not coming right now. He's he's not going to be here in the near term. But... He talks about him in terms that we've already seen in the book of Genesis. He uses the lion imagery that we see in Genesis again. And he talks about a scepter. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And he talks about a star coming out of Jacob. And the star is referenced by the Magi as Where is he who is the king of the Jews? We have seen his star and come to worship him. And the only place that a star in the Old Testament is so directly connected to the Messiah is in Balaam's prophecy. So although we don't know how the Magi learned about Balaam's prophecy, they probably knew about Numbers 24. Now there were Jews living in the East in the days before Jesus' birth, and perhaps the Magi had access to the books of Moses through the Jews that were living in the East, and they knew about this prophecy. But whatever it is, it's pretty clear that the New Testament once again understands Balaam's words as a prophet's words about the coming of the Savior. Then later in the Pentateuch, we get to Deuteronomy 18. Now, you'll recall that Deuteronomy is Moses' kind of last words, last advice, if you will, to the people of Israel before his death. God had told Moses he couldn't go into the promised land because of some things that Moses did that displeased God. But he wants the people of Israel to be prepared when they go into the land. And so he gives them this prophecy about a prophet. And he says, the Lord your God will raise up the prophet like me, you are to listen to him. And so here we have the words of Moses prophesying about a coming prophet. Now earlier in the Pentateuch in Genesis 49, we had him as a king with a scepter. Now the Messiah is also going to be a prophet. And in fact, this becomes very important in the New Testament where Jesus is several times called a prophet. And maybe importantly, we get this with John the Baptist. When people from Jerusalem, leaders from Jerusalem, send word out to John the Baptist and ask him, are you the one to come or should we look for another? Are you Elijah? And John says, no. And then they ask him, well, are you the prophet? In many English Bibles it says a prophet, but the Greek actually says, the prophet, are you the prophet? And that is a reference to this passage in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses says, the Lord your God is going to raise up a prophet like me. And they're asking, are you that prophet? And John says, no. And of course he points people to Jesus. Jesus is the prophet. So a very important prophecy. And by the way, it's referenced, I believe at the end of the book of Deuteronomy when Moses' death is recorded. And then at the very end of the book, we're told, and a prophet like Moses has not arisen to this day. And whoever wrote that last chapter of Deuteronomy, couldn't have been Moses. Moses didn't write about his own death, but somebody later on appended a story about Moses' death onto the book of Deuteronomy, probably a later prophet. And he says, we still haven't seen this person yet. And of course they wouldn't see him, until John points him out in the New Testament. So those are some prophecies, direct predictions of the Messiah in the rest of the Pentateuch.
0: I'm Todd Wilkin, you're connected to Issues Etc. It's part two of our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Our guest is Dr. Andrew Steinman. He's Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's a great guide to reading the Old Testament the way Jesus tells us to read it, to find Him. Find out more about this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order The Messianic Message, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. When we come back, how were the feasts of ancient Israel about Jesus as well? Mm-hmm. Issues, etc. Regular guests Dr. Reed Lessing and Dr. Andrew Steinman are the authors of our Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about The Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. Study the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens with the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, The Messianic Message.
1: Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com
2: lutheracademy.com.
0: Vacation land greets visitors with a sign, the way life should be. Each year, Redeemer Lutheran Church welcomes visitors to participate in the way life should be as it is lived from the means of grace. Another sign bids visitors farewell, worth a visit, worth a lifetime. Christ's life sacrificed for you was worth it. Whether a visitor or a resident in southern Maine, you will find a home, rest, and forgiveness of sins in Gorham and Sanford, Maine. RedeemerMaine.org At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com then use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply classical, a beautiful education for any child.
2: Theology for blue collar, white collar, and clerical collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not only does our church
1: need men right now, but the world needs men who will proclaim the gospel in its purity.
0: Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Peter Scare, Associate Professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana.
1: If when you go to sleep at night, you're thinking about it, my experience with it is this, is that thought won't go away. So if you're going to bed at night thinking about following our Lord and becoming a preacher of this gospel, then I would love if you could come and visit Fort Wayne, our campus.
2: We'd love to show you around and show you what it is that we do.
0: Have you ever considered becoming a pastor? Contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. It's part two of our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. Dr. Steinman, how are the feasts of ancient Israel about Jesus?
1: Yes, this is uh, very important. And, you know, oftentimes we don't read the book of Leviticus very deeply or very carefully. It has a lot of these laws about sacrifices and festivals and all these things that seem rather out of touch for modern Christians. And so we oftentimes skip over Leviticus slightly. But in fact, the sacrificial system and the system of festivals in the book of Leviticus were all designed in various ways to point out features of the coming Messiah. And so we have a number of these festivals. The first one and the, the most important one is Passover. In Passover, of course, we have the Passover lamb, who's to be without blemish. You're supposed to take a lamb without blemish, put it aside for a few days. It lives in the house, and then on Passover, the lamb is killed. And of course, at the first Passover, they put its blood on the door. When God would see the blood, he would pass over that house and not kill the firstborn sons in that house. And Passover becomes an annual festival then as legislated in the book of Leviticus. Well, Passover of course is the festival on which Jesus is sacrificed. John points him out as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Passover lamb. And Jesus indeed is crucified on the day of Passover. The connection between Jesus and Passover couldn't be clearer in the New Testament. And of course, when the blood of Jesus is applied by faith to us, God passes over us and does not punish us for our sins, just like he didn't kill the firstborn in Egypt. So Passover is one of the festivals that shows a pattern pointing to the coming of Jesus. Shortly after Passover, the Jewish people were to celebrate the first fruits festival. This is when they were to bring the first of the harvest of the land. Now the wheat and barley would come in in the early spring, they would mature and they would cut it and they were to bring some of the first fruits to God. And this was to happen shortly after Passover. In fact, it is to be on the day after the Sabbath after passover so you go to passover you find the next sabbath and then the day after that which of course is going to be a sunday you bring the first fruits to god well it's no accident then that in the new testament paul calls jesus the first fruits of the dead and jesus rose on the festival of first fruits so once again first fruits is pointing the jewish people forward to a greater fulfillment that comes in jesus who becomes the first to rise from the dead of course uh, the day of atonement leviticus chapter 16 is very important in the fall every year there was a festival day where the high priest was to have sacrifices that would atone for the sins of the people for that past year and The Day of Atonement was the one day that the high priest could enter the tabernacle's most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice goat on the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, again, the blood there is pointing us forward to a greater shed blood, the blood of Jesus, which cleanses from sin. We also have a number of other things connected with that festival. For instance, there's a second goat that's sacrificed. And that goat is not sacrificed by being killed, but is actually sent out into the wilderness away from the Israelite camp, where this domestic goat eventually will die. Before he's sent out, the high priest puts his hand on the head of this goat symbolically transferring all of israel's sins to the goat and then it's sent out into the wilderness to die this goat is called the scapegoat which is actually short for escape goat. he escapes from the camp but the scapegoat carries the sins of israel away from the camp well again another picture of what the messiah would do he would carry away the sins of the people of israel so this is Very important then for pointing the people of Israel every year to the work of the Messiah. And in fact, John in his first letter says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, many times atoning sacrifice is translated by the big English word propitiation, but that just means an atoning sacrifice or a means of reconciling to people well jesus the way we're reconciled to the father and he's talking about this in terms of the passover lamb and the goat on the day of atonement that reconciles us to god and interestingly enough we have another festival the festival of trumpets the festival of trumpets also takes place at the beginning of autumn just like the day of atonement is in autumn and They are to hold a sacred assembly in ancient Israel, and it includes trumpet blasts. Now, trumpet blasts were used for a number of things in antiquity. They weren't just used for music, music was one of them, but also they could be used in battle for a king to signal his troops. Remember, they don't have our modern technology, so they would use trumpets to uh, signal in battle when the king was trying to command his army. And interestingly enough, the festival of trumpets would point the people of Israel to the final judgment of God, something that we ourselves are still awaiting, and something that is taken up again later on in the Old Testament by the prophet Zechariah. He says in the ninth chapter, Zechariah says, The Lord will appear over them, his arrows will go forth like lightning, the Lord will sound the trumpet, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south, again, depicting the final judgment on all things. And this, again, is taken up in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, when talking about Jesus' return and the resurrection of the dead, Paul talks about this happening at the last trumpet. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, He says that the Lord will descend from heaven with the cry of a command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So twice Paul does this. And so the Feast of Trumpets was another picture of the Messiah, a picture that's still something we anticipate in the future when we look forward to Jesus' return. So these festivals in particular are very important for ways that the Messiah was portrayed in patterns that repeated themselves year after year in the festivals of Israel.
0: Talk about the anointed one in the Old Testament.
1: Yes, this is a, a very important term. Anointed one in Hebrews, is Mashiach, where we get Messiah in English. And uh, anointing was done to induct people into office. We're probably very familiar with the story of David being anointed by Samuel. And before that, Saul was anointed by Samuel. So we have kings who are anointed. But again, back to the book of Leviticus, the high priest was anointed into his office. And in, sometimes in Leviticus, he's called the anointed priest. And then we even have a reference to anointing prophets into office. when. Elijah is told that he's going to be taken to heaven. He's told first go and anoint Elisha to be prophet in your place. So we have anointing of prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. And of course, in the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as all three, a prophet, a priest, and of course, a king. And in fact, he's crucified for being king of the jews as the title above his head written by pilate said so this is a very important idea now the the term messiah does not occur often in the old testament but it is a very important concept nevertheless when the church grew up the the major language of most christians was not hebrew but greek very early on the church in antioch began to call themselves Christians. Why Christians? Well, the Greek word Christos means anointed one. And the church in Antioch made up mainly of Gentiles who didn't speak any Hebrew, but were very well familiar with Greek, took the Greek term Christos, which corresponds to Mashiach, and talked about themselves as Christians, followers of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And so ever since, when we call ourselves Christians, we are indeed saying we're followers of the anointed one, the one whose anointing was predicted in the Old Testament. And of course, we have this played out famously in the book of Isaiah, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news and so forth in the prophet Isaiah. So this is very important. We meet anointing very early on, as I said, in the Bible, already in the Pentateuch, and this term then uh, becomes the term for the one that God has set apart to redeem the nations. And we can't hardly get out of the Old Testament without seeing this term as very important. And interestingly enough, the New Testament uses the term Christ, but in two instances, both in the Gospel of John, the writer John writes out Messiah in Greek letters instead of Christ. So John sees Christ and Messiah as very important, so important that he bothers to write out the Hebrew word Messiah in Greek for his readers.
0: Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. It's our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. We'll talk about the Messianic promise made regarding King David's line next. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal Subscription button at issuesetc.org.
2: The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Life Ministry is thousands of people sharing Christ's love and mercy and giving witness to our Lord's creation of life, His design for marriage and the family, and the God-given value of all human life from conception to natural death. Working with many partners, LCMS Life Ministry sponsors human care efforts that meet the needs of body and soul and provides resources and educational events for all ages. To learn more, email life ministry at lcms.org and visit lcms.org slash life. Expert guests, expansive topics. Extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues, etc.
0: Concordia University Chicago invites all high school students to attend the annual Careers for Christ weekend in person on our beautiful campus in River Forest. Careers for Christ is November 3rd through the 5th. You'll have the opportunity to learn about professional church vocations while having fun with CUC staff, faculty, and students. For more information, visit cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number 4C. That is cuchicago.edu forward slash C, the number 4C.
1: For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House. A charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at siestakeyrentalgenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858.
0: back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part two of our series, Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Dr. Andrew Steinman is our guest. He's co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. Cruesome provides high-quality products and services for church and home. Visit AdCruesome.com and check out their Christ-centered greeting cards, banners, plaques, jewelry, posters, art, and more. AdCruesome.com a D C R U C E M dot com. Dr. Steinman, what's the messianic promise made regarding King David's line?
1: Yes, this is very important. Second Samuel 7, which is paralleled in First Chronicles 17, depicts a promise to David, and it comes in connection with David's desire to build a house for God. David has this great desire to build God a temple. He realizes that he has a nice palace to live in and God should have a nice house to live in too. And so he tells the prophet Nathan that he wants to build God a house. And Nathan at first says, good idea, you know, pursue what you want to do. But then we're told that Nathan goes home that night and God reveals to him some prophecy that he is to give to David. And he goes back to David and he says, The Lord is going to build you a house. So he turns it around, not David building God a house, but God building David a house. Now, of course, this is a play on words because David by house means a building. God by house means a dynasty. And it's an interesting prophecy because it it prophesies somewhat about Solomon. You will have a son that come from your own body. I will be his father, you know, and he will build a house for me. David's not allowed to build the house because he was a man of war, we learn in the book of Chronicles. But we have this prophecy about Solomon to build a building for God. But then we have a promise to David that points to the Messiah because God says that he is going to give David a everlasting kingdom. And of course, that everlasting kingdom requires then an everlasting king. Well, that king is the Messiah. And this promise to David is so important that it is repeated in references again and again in the prophets. They will speak about God's mercies to David. They will speak about, for instance, Isaiah talks about the root from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. And sometimes in prophesying about the Messiah, later on the prophets will simply call the messiah david because this promise to david is linked so closely with him and so identified with him that they simply start calling the messiah david and some of the later prophets of the old testament now this is important because when we start with genesis again the foundation we had the promise to eve it obviously went through noah because he was the only one of his generation we trace it down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob tells us it's going to come through Judah. David is from the line of Judah. And the next time the promise is narrowed down is this promise to David. And so we now know that Jesus, as descendant of David, fulfills that promise. And it's no accident then that on a couple of occasions in the New Testament, people in hailing Jesus will call him son of David. In effect, They are confessing that they believe that he is the Messiah promised to come through the line of David and establish this kingdom, which will be eternal. And of course, that eternal kingdom is what we're waiting for when we look forward to the great final trumpet in the Feast of Trumpets. So it all ties us back together again in these predictions and patterns of the uh, Messiah
0: in the Old Testament. How do we see that messianic pattern in the old testament's historical books
1: the pattern is a little less distinct in the historical books than it is in the other books but it is still there one of the ways we see it is in the book of ruth you'll remember in the book of ruth we have the main male character in the book of ruth named boaz who eventually will marry ruth and have a son with her, and of course, Ruth then becomes one of the maternal ancestors of Jesus. She's mentioned in the New Testament in Jesus' genealogy. Well, we find Boaz as kind of the the pattern of the kinsman redeemer who takes Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, rescues them from their poverty, gives especially Ruth a home and marries her, and of course, has a child with her, So in some ways he becomes a pattern, but it's pointed out in a very interesting way at the very end of the book of Ruth. The last verses in the book of Ruth give us a genealogy that traces us from the time of the exile all the way down to David going through Boaz. Now, when you look at that genealogy, and you count the generations there, starting with the first one listed and going all the way down to David, you realize that Boaz is the seventh man listed and David is the 10th. Now, seven and 10 are very important numbers already in the Pentateuch. A number of things happen concerning seven or multiples of seven, like 14. For instance, the Passover is on the 14th day of the first month for israel the first month of spring and 10 is very important the passover lamb for instance is set aside on the 10th day there are a number of important connections with 7 and 10 in the pentateuch starting already with creation and then god resting on the seventh day well if you look in the genealogies in genesis we have two genealogies that serve to connect us from adam through noah to Abraham. And if you put those two genealogies together, what do you find? Well, the seventh man in those genealogies is a man named Enoch, who is pointed out to us in the genealogies as a very godly man. We're told he walked with God and he was not for God took him. Apparently he never died. God took him directly to heaven as a reward for his faithfulness. So Enoch stands out and he's seventh Now number 10 in the list, Adam is one, 10 is Noah. Again, as we talked about earlier, very important man, whose life in some ways patterns that of the Messiah, but through whom God saved the world. So 10, very important. Then if we go on to the next genealogy, that's in chapter 11 of Genesis and keep on counting, we come to the 14th man, a man named Eber. Now he may not stand out to a lot of Bible readers, but in fact, Eber is mentioned fairly often in the book of Genesis up to that point. I think five or six times, very few people in this genealogy are mentioned that many times. And Eber is important because he gives his name to the Hebrews. Hebrew actually means someone who's descended from Eber. And Abraham is called a Hebrew and Joseph, a couple times in Genesis is called a Hebrew. So very important man, Eber, and he's 14, double seven. And then you get to the 20th person in the genealogy. The 20th generation is Abraham. And so I believe that the writer of Ruth understands this about the genealogies back in Genesis, the genealogy of the Messiah that stretches from Adam all the way to Abraham, and that will be used later on in the New Testament to give us Jesus' genealogy. But the writer of Ruth understood this. And so when he does his genealogy of David, the great king who's given the messianic promise, he uses the same 7 and 10 pattern, putting Boaz at 7 and David at 10. And so it's very subtle but it is very clearly a pattern that is repeated again in the book of Ruth from a pattern that started already in the book of Genesis.
0: Dr. Andrew Steinman is Professor Emeritus of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago. He's co-author of the Issues Etc., a book of the month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. Next time, we'll talk with him about the presence of Christ, in the historical books of the Old Testament and the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll find out why Dr. Jordan Cooper isn't Eastern Orthodox, and we'll talk with Rapper Flame about his journey from Calvinism to Lutheranism. And on Friday, we'll continue our series Kids Have Questions with Pastor Jonathan Connor. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening.
2: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Join us September 29th at 7 p.m. for a hymn festival celebrating the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels at Good Shepherd Lutheran in Collinsville, Illinois. Hymn commentary will be provided by Pastor Will Whedon, host of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever podcast, along with organist Chris Lemker, orchestra and choir. For more information or to register to sing in the choir, visit our website withangelsandarchangels.org. St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Wildwood, Missouri is a proud sponsor of Issues Etc. And if you enjoy the relevant, Christ-centered teachings presented on this program, then you should come and join us at St. Paul's on Sundays at 9 a.m., where you will hear sermons that proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins and enjoy in-depth Bible studies to help us grow as disciples. For more information, check us out at Wildwood.org.
0: Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? We'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's Small Catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. Order your free copy of Luther's Small Catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at issuesetc.org.